You're listening to the Christian Worldview series with the young adults of Calvary Tabernacle. For more information, visit us online at www.ctyoungadults.com. If you're looking for someone to be polite and nice to you when you're not doing something right, you shouldn't come to my house. We have a, we have a long history of being blunt and honest, but we somehow seem to survive. So, anyway... I have always had this question in my mind, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be a good Christian and be a scientist? And when I first moved to Indianapolis from Michigan, one of my first friends, we, we attended the Bible church here in town for several years, and the first one of the first families that were our friends were, the, were Sister Rachel Wolf's parents. This is all pre-kids. And uh, and as you're getting to know each other and you're going out to eat, right, and you're playing games at each other's house, eventually you get to the point where you ask each other, well, what do you do? You know, what's your job? What do you do for a living? And I remember I told Nancy Wolf, I said, I'm a research chemist for Lily. And she started laughing uncontrollably. She said, you are, you are not. <laughs> Tell me the truth. What do you do, really? Okay, okay, you've had your joke. What do you really do? It's like, no, really, I, I'm a chemist. No, you're not. Yeah, <laughs> I really am. Um, and, and so you, it was just, and, and, you know, I still love Nancy. We've been friends for a long time, and that that's, wasn't a problem. But it was, it was like an attitude. Well, and then C.J. McFarland has started a new job, and she was talking to someone in their training just recently. And she, this guy is, is an atheist. He just doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in anything. And she was talking about me, how I has, was a, a lawyer and a research scientist. And he took the position, well, I didn't think a Christian could, like, be educated. Like, well, okay. And, but, you know, there are lots of people around you who are in the scientists. Scientists. It's not, it's not that bizarre. Tamara Faulkner is in medical school, for heaven's sake. All right, and you've got Rachel who does, does she radiates people and looks at their bones and their innards, their gizzards and stuff. My daughter-in-law studied the science of nutrition. Okay, so believe it or not, there are Christians among you who are scientists. So, to those of you who have felt that someone cannot be a scientist and a Christian, or for those of you who felt that Christians simply could not be scientists, I respectfully say. <laughs> Please do not impute your ignorance onto me. Okay, that was enough of that. Is that fine? All right, so we're going to talk about the biblical view of science. So first, let's start out with how are we going to define science? We need a working definition before we can even have a discussion. Science is the knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through the scientific method. Now, as a lawyer, I'm here to tell you this is a terrible definition because it has undefined terms. So we're now we're going to talk about the scientific method. What is the scientific method? Well, the scientific method is, first, you make an observation. Hmm, look at that. Then you form a hypothesis based on that observation or that fact. So the observation is a fact. I mean, I did, the, I, I see this, 
I observed it. I see this. It's a fact. It, it happened. So I'm going to form a hypothesis. How did that happen? Well, I'll form a hypothesis. And we're going to do a little demonstration to kind of help us out a little bit. And so then I run another experiment to test my hypothesis. I got to test my hypothesis. And if I get an observation that backs up my hypothesis, I'll go, well, that's pretty good. Because I ran this experiment to test my hypothesis, and my hypothesis ended up being correct because the experiment did what I thought it would do. So then based on that, I think, well, what else other experiment could I run to test my hypothesis? How far can I extend my hypothesis? Does it only, and a classical example of this was the Bohr atom. Oh, I'm sorry. We have a chemist in here. You're just going to have to deal with it. But the Bohr atom was a theoretical model of hydrogen. Hydrogen has a proton and an electron. And so Bohr made a hypothesis about how that electron circled around the proton in the nucleus. And then he tried to extrapolate that to helium, which is the next gas. Helium, however, and hydrogen's a very wonderful molecule. It explodes with oxygen. Fabulous stuff. Someday I'll, I'll bring a tank in and we'll blow up balloons. It's a lot of fun. But anyway, so you've got hydrogen is very reactive. And you add one more proton and one more electron, and you get helium. And then everything you know about hydrogen goes right down the crapper. All your theories fail. So his hypothesis of the Bohr atom on hydrogen absolutely collapsed as soon as he extended it to, to helium. So it just doesn't work. But anyway, you do your experiments, and you, you keep setting up your hypothesis. And if you, if you keep supporting your hypothesis long enough, you can declare it a theory. OK? And so now you have a theory because I've done all these experiments to prove up my hypothesis. But you still do experiments from time to time to see if, you, if your theory is still correct. And if you keep doing this long enough, you can say it's a law. It's a law. That's a scientific method. So. Let's do an experiment. My hypothesis is that stuff is made out of molecules. Okay, That's my hypothesis. Because I see here, this is very scientific. It is a mason jar full of water. I wanted to be more scientific, the beakers, but I couldn't find anything bigger than 400 milliliters to buy. So I'm going to use a mason jar so that you can see it better. Now. My experiment is going to be this. My hypothesis is, is that there are atoms and molecules. And if there are molecules, and will you accept for me, with me that this is water in the mason jar? Okay. So we have water in the mason jar. Pretty profound, huh? And I'm telling you this is full of water molecules. Everybody knows the, the formula for water? H2O, two hydrogens and an oxygen, right? Everybody with me, right? Anybody know the molecular weight of water? 18. 18 grams per mole. Mole, 6.023 times 10 to the 23rd molecules per mole, right? Everybody's with me? Good. All right, so, so that's water. And water has a dipole moment. You've got the oxygen, which is highly electronegative. It's sucking electrons away from the hydrogens. And so you have a, a partial negative, partial positive, and as a result of which you get hydrogen bonding. 
And it is that hydrogen bonding that keeps all of you alive. Because water, if it weren't for hydrogen bonding, if you follow on the periodic table, ammonia, NH3, gas, in chemistry. Hydrogen sulfide, which is heavier than water, gas. Water, H2O, liquid, room temperature. It's a miracle. Hydrogen bonding. It's not a formal bond. It's a partial bond induced by electrons. But these molecules have weight. They weigh something. And things that have weight, if they move, have momentum. A little physics to go with your, with your uh, atomic theory. Is anybody enjoying this but me? Oh, wonderful. Thanks. Okay. That's, I should move on, shouldn't I? Okay, already. All right. So I'm going to add, I'm, I'm telling you that these molecules are all moving around. They're in constant motion at room temperature. It's only at absolute zero that all molecular motion would stop. These are moving all the time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a drop of dye in this one. And my hypothesis is that this dye is going to move around. Okay, let's see if it works. Well, look at this. There goes the dye. Can everybody see that moving around? Kind of growing like a cloud. Now, if we gave this enough time, that dye will gradually completely disperse in that mason jar. It will be equally distributed everywhere. What is making that dye move? Here's a question. What's making it move? How do you know? Because you can see what? Can you see the molecules? What can you see? You, what you can see is the effect of the molecules bouncing into each other. Right? Now, they were bouncing around against each other before I put the dye in. But it wasn't until I put in the dye that you could see. So, what I, my hypothesis is, is there are atoms and molecules. Think matter is made up of, of atoms, molecules. My hypothesis is that they all move around, unless you're at absolute zero, which we're not. And you can see the effect of those things, even though you can't see them. This is an indirect proof. There are atoms and there are molecules. Now, there are other things that I can do. What happens to molecules when you heat them up? You add heat to the system, what happens? They move faster. So if I heat that up, it would go real fast. Conversely, if I cooled it way down, the rate at which these things moved around would slow down. But I can also exert an external force. So there's a beaker of water, which is much more scientific than a mason jar full of water. You can see it moving around, but I can just stir it. And I have created blue water. All right? Now, with time, you know, thank you, Sam. With time, this will convert into blue water. It'll look just like this. But you're going to have to trust me on that because this is going to take a long time if I let the natural process go all by itself. But if I intervene, this blue water can happen really fast. And, and this one happened fast through stirring. Anyone know what kind of flask this is? Erlenmeyer flask, very good. You know why they call it Erlenmeyer flask? A guy named Erlenmeyer invented it. <laughs> 
All right, and the, re the powerful thing with these flasks, if you ever work in a lab, is you can swirl stuff and keep it in the flask. So I put it in, it's just like that, I don't want to stir it, I'm going to swirl it. And I end up with a little water, very good. All right, so these things can happen over a long period of time by natural processes, or if I intervene in the natural process, I can make, I can invent blue water. I can make it happen very easy. Now, here's the test. I have here a beaker of blue water. Anybody see my beaker of blue water? Have you observed my beaker of blue water? Do you accept with the first means that this is a beaker of blue water? How did I create it? Why not? Why can't we decide how I created it? From what? It's blue water. How did I create it? Okay, but how did I create it? What was the process I went through to get this blue water? Why can't you tell me? You didn't observe it. You weren't there. You didn't see it. Thank you. Well, I could be done, but I won't be. I still have 30 seconds left. All right. So for a scientific method to be applied, a phenomenon must be observable, it must be measurable, and it must be reproducible. If you do not have all three of these, you cannot apply the scientific method. This is only coffee. I'm not going to tell that joke. Okay, so you have to have these. And if you are missing any one of these elements, you have to make assumptions. You want to know how you make a scientist mad? when they're off on some wild theory, ask them to articulate for you what their assumptions Ask them what they are guessing about. Ask them what they're making up. Trust me, you will stop many an argument dead in its tracks if you ask someone, what are you assuming? I would also argue that in life, <laughs> if you get crossways with somebody, take a deep breath, look them straight in the eye, and just say, what are your assumptions? Where are you starting from? People don't like to admit what they're assuming. They don't like to admit what they don't know. Many theories that are espoused to contradict biblical principles are nothing more than theories and assumptions because they cannot be observed, they cannot be measured, and they cannot be reproduced. So now the issue becomes, who's taking the greater leap of faith? Now I want to be clear, I believe in science. I'm a scientist. Science has done marvelous things for our society. We have all benefited tremendously by the practice of scientists in their invention. But science cannot explain away 
the teaching of the Bible. It cannot be done. But methodology does not exist. So whenever you're in that kind of a situation, simply ask, what are your assumptions? And you know, I, I stand by the statement that a lot of great things have happened. It's been good for society. But science is not infallible. Let me give you a recent example. Um, it was accepted as a law, a scientific truth, that, okay, you've got a cell. In the cell is a nucleus. In the nucleus is uh, your uh, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. These nucleic acids are the brains. They are the code of every cell. And I have heard people use that as a proof for there had to be a God. Because the DNA has a language. There is all the information needed for life packed into the nucleus of a cell. How to use energy, how to reproduce, how to respond to the uh, uh, environment, when to die. It's all there. It's all coded in that little tiny cell. And I have heard that referred to as the language of God. Just like we, we read ancient literature and it helps us understand what the ancients were thinking, what their philosophies were, how they viewed uh, different parts of society. You want to understand a little bit more about God? Study a little bit of cellular biology. You will gain an incredible appreciation for the creative genius of God. Having said that, it was accepted as a scientific truth that DNA would encode RNA, which would then encode, go off uh, and generate proteins. Okay, The stuff we're all made up of, proteins. However, when they were studying the HIV virus, they found that there were enzymes called reverse transcriptases that allowed RNA to encode DNA. Now, the facts of this are not important, so I'm not going to belabor it. The point is, is that scientists had a law. They were convinced this is how it happened. And then all of a sudden, they do one more experiment, and that law had to be trashed and go all the way back to a hypothesis because now here are enzymes that I don't know anything about. Scientific law had to be rewritten. I'll use uh, Sister Camera as a, not as an object lesson, but to, to validate what I'm about to say. I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for over 30 years. And what I can tell you is that the more I have learned, I appreciate how little I really know. I appreciate how little we really know about how our own bodies work. And Sister Faulkner and I have talked about this a couple of times, is that she has studied and studied, and now she's actually, you're working on patients, right? I mean, you're actually making decisions and stuff, but almost. You're, you're gathering data for somebody else to make a decision. <laughs> but would you agree with me that the more training you've gotten in medicine, Would you agree with that statement that actually it's stunning how little we really know? It's amazing. And yet, I read these blogs uh, on the pharmaceutical industry, and this guy was so arrogant that he said, well, I have, I have noted that there are genes for these proteins distributed throughout all these different tissues, but the proteins don't actually, aren't actually synthesized. 
And so that proves to me that we have just evolved and those are no longer necessary. How arrogant is that? That presumes that we have perfect knowledge on how everything works. Anyone who is honest about medicine, about science, do we know a lot? We do. We know a lot of things about a lot of things. But compared to what we don't know, it's like a drop in a bucket. So let's now move on to the Bible. We've talked about science. The Bible, the Word of God, is the only completely reliable source of truth. What is truth? God is truth. God's Word is truth. God is the source of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and you can read the rest. Okay? So Scripture comes from God. God's character is truth. Titus 1.2 says that God that cannot lie. So God is truth. Therefore, the scripture must necessarily reflect the same character as God, or the veracity of God is denied. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Okay? So for the Bible to hold together, for Christianity to hold together, the Bible has to be true. It just has to be. There's no... There's no two ways about it. For many scientists, though, that's a real problem. Confidence in man's knowledge, pride in human accomplishment, clouds people's judgment and obstructs their willingness to accept that there is a God. I take comfort in the fact that there's a God. I look at how we do with our government. I look at how we have done, if you study history, the history of mankind, how we've treated each other, how governments have treated their people, how we're unable to distribute wealth in a, in a meaningful way, how terrible things can happen in the name of religion and everything else. I am glad that there's a God up there that is much smarter than I am that has, is in control of everything because when we have things to ourselves, we do a terrible job. We're not really good at this uh, without God. And whether or not someone believes something does not affect whether it's the truth or not. That's something you've got to keep in mind. I mean, if somebody takes the position, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, that does not diminish the Bible one way. I don't really care if you believe it or not. It's true. There's a phrase that used to be kicked around a lot. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Now, first I want to say, while I may subscribe to that philosophy somewhat, uh, that's not a compelling argument if you're going to try to talk to people about God and science and the Bible and things. You, you, you might want to find uh, another line of reasoning. Uh, and I would argue that stated that way, it puts too much emphasis on us. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's better said, God said it, that settles it. It just so happens that I believe it. I think that puts us in the right position. The Bible and science. Um, I, I, I want to be clear that this may be a bit unsettling for some. Um, 
some of the positions that I may take, but I would like for you to think about it before you uh, call out the execution. Here. When the Bible addresses a matter of science, physiology, astronomy, any other area, it does so with an intended level of accuracy. And that is not to imply that the Bible should be used as a science textbook. It is not a science textbook. It was never intended to be a science textbook. The purpose of Scripture is to reveal God to man. That's it. Okay? Now, when the theological and the scientific overlap in the Bible, the Bible account is correct. That is a critical point. When the Bible does touch on these things, it is absolutely correct. Here are some examples. Matter is not eternal. It is created. Okay? And we're going to get to the Genesis account, but the simple preceded the complex in the order of life, just like the Bible does. Man is the latest and greatest creation of God, just like the Bible does. Jesus was born of a virgin, just like the Bible does. And this universe will have a demise, and it's going to make way for a new heaven and a new earth, just like the Bible does. Even though it's not a textbook of science, like I said, because the Bible is truth, when it addresses an area of science, it does so with God's truthfulness. I want to give you an example. In Greek mythology, it was held that the earth sat on the shoulders of the god Atlas. In Hindu theology, they said that the earth was on the back of four elephants that rested on the back of a turtle that was swimming in a sea of milk. And if you if you observe any Hindu things, they use they pour milk on top of idols and stuff. It's pretty cool. But anyway, when the Bible addresses this, look at what it says in the book of Job. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Job was written a long time before anyone had a telescope, before anyone had any sense of the cosmos at all. So when the Bible spoke about this astronomical point, it was exactly correct, scientifically impeccable. The earth is just hanging there. That's right. And all of the data and all of our our spaceships and all this kind of stuff where they've been able to observe these things, it's just hanging there, just like it said in the book of Job. And this was an unusual, and, and the reason I put the other theories there was to give you some context. When other people had thought about it, they came up with stuff that we laugh at today. Yet when the Bible spoke about it, it is exactly correct. The Holy Ghost did not give the writers of the Bible the secrets of modern science. He could have, but he did not. I am going to take this position, and I hope it's not offensive, but it is an error to seek truth 
of science in various verses of the Bible. That's not what it says. To look for relativity theory, nuclear physics, or atomic theory in the Bible is nonsense. It's not there. Let's talk about creation. The doctrine of creation is fundamental to Christian and biblical theology. It's not possible to separate the theological and ethical teachings of the Bible from the references to nature. You cannot do it. This matters. This debate that everybody wants about creation, this matters. Divine creation is referenced from the Pentateuch through the book of Revelation, all the way through. The Christ of the New Covenant is the Logos of creation. If you want in a secondary or a yet another proof of the oneness of God, read the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I'm just going to read it quickly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even on them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is a powerful passage when you're thinking about creation because it draws a line all the way from the creation through to Jesus, who was the Word incarnate. This, did I get this right? Okay, thank you. I mean, this is, this is a serious matter. You need to know this stuff. Creation is critical to the, to the credibility of the Bible. The task of science is the understanding of nature. The task of theology is the understanding of God. The speech of God in the Bible, therefore, must accord with the speech of God in his creation. So I want to take, it would just be crazy to talk about creation and not read the first few verses of Genesis 1. And I've got a lot to cover, and the time is getting away. So I'm just going to start. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. I'm, those, that whole chapter deserves to be read, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's familiar to a lot of you, and I think, I think you understand my point. Now, a little while ago, I pulled out a beaker of blue water, right? And I told you I created you. 
this future of blue light. In the beginning, Bob created a beaker of blue light. Is that statement true? Did I tell you how I did it? Was it my intention to tell you how I did it? Does it matter how I did it? Science, to the extent that it can study it, is interested in the how. The how does not undermine the what. And the what is God created the heaven and the earth. I have been, this approach has been characterized as minimalistic. I accept that. But as a scientist, you tend to reduce things down to the simplest thing. And it is my view that it really is that simple. These arguments, these debates, these great discussions are fun on a theoretical level. But when you're getting to the heart of faith, when you're getting to the belief in God, what the scientists say about how God did it just doesn't matter at all. <laughs> and it shouldn't shake your faith one way or the other. You want to say he did it this way? Maybe he did. Because he didn't tell us. And we will understand it better by and by. We don't need to understand that today. Today, we just need to know God created the heaven and the earth. So Genesis chapter 1 provides a broad general sketch of creation. To try to prove anything more than that just shouldn't happen. When we try to do it as Christians, we force the record to speak in detail beyond its intent. It wasn't intended to be anything more than it is. When the skeptics try to interpret it that way, to discredit it, they do so in a spirit of rebellion. They're starting from the presumption that this is false, and I'm going to prove it's false. You can't prove it's false. The language of the Bible is phenomenal, and by that I don't mean it's like, oh, man, that was just phenomenal. I mean it's talking about a phenomenon. It's just describing it. When it speaks astronomically, it talks about the Earth, the Sun, the Moon, and the stars. It does not mention asteroids, comets, nebulas, or planets, even though we know they exist. It is classified as a phenomenon, and it's restricted to that which greets the eye as you graze to the heavens. That's all it was intended to do. Does that mean that these other things don't exist? No. Does it mean that they didn't exist when this was written? No. It just means that God revealed what he needed to reveal to the writer of Genesis. Okay? Biologically, it talks about fish, fowl, cattle, birds, grass, herbs, and fruit trees. It doesn't classify amphibians, marsupials, or cactus. Does that mean they don't exist? No. It just means that to the people around that area, to the experience of people at that time, it was a class classification of common knowledge. The Bible doesn't theorize as to the actual nature of things. In fact, the ancient Hebrews were unique in the fact that they simply attributed nature and its laws to the work of God. They just didn't take it any further than that. That's why they were so bizarre in the rest of the world. Everybody else was taking a tree and praying to it. Everybody else was building an idol to the sun. They, they, you know, they worshipped crocodiles because that was the god of the river. The Hebrews didn't do that when they were in the right relationship with God. It was not in their, uh, it was not in their lexicon because 
if they saw it and they didn't have an explanation for it from God, they just said, oh, law of God, no problem. It's all in God's hands. God's taking care of it. It was a perspective, but it's understandable if you read the Bible. It makes perfect sense. And there's nothing incorrect about anything that they believed. The language of the Bible employs the culture of the times in which it was written as the medium of revelation. The vocabulary of time in the Old Testament is not strict scientific time, but it's the time-reckoning methods and units of the cultural period of the biblical writers. Now, reasonable people can disagree on some of these facts. So one of the big bugaboos is how old is Jesus? I am going to say that I don't think that that's such a big deal or really matters. Because we talk about a day. And in the passages that I read, we got to a creative day. And there are those who say, it says day. That's 24 hours. That's day. And I say, you are right. That's what it says. I am not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not even a Hebrew dummy. I don't read Hebrew. I don't know anything about it. But I have read a number of writings by people who hold themselves up as he ex experts in ancient Hebrew, and they don't all agree. There are different interpretations. What I am suggesting to you is that maybe a day meant a 24-hour a day, and maybe it meant an era. Maybe it meant some epoch. I don't know. I'm not a good enough scholar of the ancient language to know for sure. And it may be that all of our assumptions about what the language means would be wrong. We'll understand it better by and by. What I know is that God created the heaven and the earth. And the first thing he did was separate the light from darkness. Firmament, what it says. That's what it, that was the order he did it in. How long exact did that take? I don't know. Although, it is interesting that when we say day, we mean a 24-hour day. What is the event that takes 24 hours? Hmm? Earth rotates on its axis once a year. It goes all the way around the sun in a year. So it's a solar, it's a solar system. The sun and the moon weren't put in the sky till the fourth day. So when it's saying day, I don't know exactly what it means. And when it's saying separate the light from darkness, I don't know exactly what it means. I don't. I look through a glass darkly. I will understand it better. The mathematics and the measuring systems are those of a pre-scientific era. In fact, numbers were frequently used the same way we use many same earth years. A number didn't necessarily mean, if I said three, it didn't really mean one, two, three, three. It meant I got a few. And if I had 70, it doesn't mean that I had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 70 things, and then I had a lot. I don't know exactly how many, but it was a lot, so it's 70. Okay, so it's, that's how that language I understand. Okay. God makes sense of the universe's origin. Scientific evidence points to a beginning of the universe in time, the Big Bang. Since something can't just come out of nothing, there has to be a transcendent cause beyond space and time which brought the universe into being. To exclude God requires one to believe the universe came from nothing by nothing. 
Okay? Atheists used to believe the universe was timeless and uncaused. Science has overwhelmingly shown this to be untrue. It had a beginning. It did. Hebrews 11.3 addresses this exact point. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. They came from stuff that we don't see today, we don't understand it, but by faith we understand that it was created from something. God had to do it. So let me give you this example. If there were to be a loud bang out in the hallway, and you were to look at me and say, what caused that bang out there? And if I said, oh, nothing, who would believe it? No one. Of course it had a cause. Well, if a small bang has a cause, doesn't it make sense that a big bang would have a cause? God also makes sense of the universe's complexity. Scientifically, it's far more problematic for a life-prohibiting universe to exist than a life-sustaining one. Life on Earth is balanced on a razor's edge. You don't believe me? Anybody seen the pictures from the Mars rover? Nobody has seen the pictures from the rover. Okay, all right. What's there? Rocks. Firmament, baby. That's it. Rocks and dirt is all that's there. Anybody seen the pictures of uh, Mercury as the messenger satellites going around? Anybody even know there's a messenger satellite going around? Have you seen it? No. Guess what's there? Rocks. Permanent. That's it. There's nothing there. They have done experiment after experiment. They, we have spent billions of dollars as a society because we're trying to find life someplace else. Why do we want to find life someplace else? Because we don't want there to be a God. And if I could just find some sign of life someplace else, we're good. Even if it's algae, even if it's bacteria, I don't care what it is. Just let there be life somewhere else so I don't have to believe this God thing. But they're left with, with nothing but a ridiculous, empty hypothesis. Because there is no explanation for the beginning. If the rate of the universe's expansion, one second after the big, big Bang, had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have collapsed into a fireball by our calculations. It wouldn't have expanded. There would have been a big explosion, and then because of all of the matter that was created, it would just have collapsed on itself into one big fireball. And that would have been it. It had to be precisely tuned for the universe to expand as it has and done the things that it did. I actually have a hypothesis. I have no basis for it. It's just in my heart, it's how I feel. The entire universe, all the stars, are all necessary for us to have life right here. That's how great I have it. That's how finely tuned and how well planned all of this this is a quote from Patrick Glynn in God, the Evidence. I, I'm going to need another leaf. I can't finish this. Today, the concrete data points strongly in the direction of the God hypothesis. 
Those who wish to oppose it have no testable theory to marshal. Only speculation about unseen universes spun from fertile scientific imagination. Ironically, the picture of the universe bequeathed to us by the most advanced 20th century science is closer to the vision presented in the book of Genesis than anything offered by science since This was written by an atheist who, after studying science, converted to Christianity. It was, things are too magnificent. The science is too powerful. It is so complex. It is so beautiful that to think that it just happens by random chance takes more faith than to believe that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Science. Last week, we spent uh, uh, the full time talking about the philosophy of science, some of the limitations of science, and the right uh, perspective of the Bible uh, when compared to scientific theory. Um, I, I want to just step back for a minute because we're going we're to skip over creation and all the early stuff, and we're going to move down to evolution. Now, it's, it's impossible to talk about these things in isolation because they're so interwoven. And it was unfortunate that I needed to, to, to uh, break the lesson, but it was, it was inevitable because of time. So just as a refresher, let's remember what the scientific method is, is that you have to make an observation, which then you state as a fact, you form a hypothesis about that observation, and then you start doing experiments to see if you can... Uh, further refine your hypothesis. Once the hypothesis begins to predict results, it will evolve into a theory. And then over time, with lots and lots of experimentation, that theory becomes a law. So for the scientific... In order for the scientific method to be applied, a phenomenon must be observable, measurable, and reproducible. Okay? And that, that is a very important point. As you are engaging people in these kinds of discussions, when someone wants to dig down and get into this kind of a debate, you always need to come back to what the scientific method is and when its application is appropriate. So, you know, run forward a few slides. Ah, evolution. Um, that's right, I had a lot of slides. Uh, Darwin proposed that the differences that he observed in species was the result of natural selection. Okay? So that was his proposal, was that the reason that we see speciation, or that we see all these different kinds of animals, or we see specialized animals, animals that are specialized for, the, for a particular environment, was the result of natural selection. And that has led to the wide acceptance that evolu evolution, in fact, occurs. Now, other people have taken Darwin's theory. You know, Darwin really wasn't talking about creation. He made a simple scientific observation. Others have taken Darwin's theory, though, and have expanded his hypothesis to say, well, if we see evidence that things adapt, if we see evidence that things have changed, then we can extrapolate that all the way back 
and use this as a hypothesis of how life actually began. And so they come to the conclusion that life as we know it evolved from simpler and simpler and simpler life forms over millions and millions and millions of years. And the result of this is that if you take it to its logical end then, there's no longer a need for a creator. So when you get into a discussion or a debate with someone on this matter, where their understanding or their concept of God is blocked because of some idea around evolution or, or creation or something like that. You need to keep these two concepts separate, okay? Evolution is a process. Things evolve. They do. We see it. They change. They adapt. We were created to adapt. It's part of the miracle of creation. It's the complexity that God put into us, okay? We don't understand it, but it occurs. What that, but you cannot take that observation, which is true, and extrapolate all the way back and say, aha, that must be how we got here today. Always remember when you're arguing these points or discussing these points that these two things need to be considered separately. Because that's a trap that we as Christians sometimes fall into is that we want to start arguing, oh, I don't believe nothing evolves. No, that's not true. It does. We were created that way. What it doesn't mean, though, is that you can extrap all the way back. And when you keep those two concepts separate, the discussion becomes much more manageable. But the fundamental question for an evolutionist, though, is life itself, existence itself. So if you're going to keep a creator out of the picture, you have to provide an explanation for how things began. And now you can see the integration of the two concepts. You know, it's, it's the difficulty in separating creation from evolution because the problem with evolution is not the fact, the observation that things change. They do. The problem is, how do I take it all the way back? And now you're back to the creation question. But you have to come at it from a little different angle. So if, if you're going to keep the creator out, there's got to be some natural explanation for the origin of life. And there is no such explanation. And I really like this statement. How is it that inanimate matter could organize itself to contemplate itself? I love that line. I had to think about it for a long time. But in other words, is there any evidence that non-living chemicals could develop by themselves into living matter? Given enough time in the right conditions. And what I want to emphasize today is there is no evidence of that. And if you push people who disagree, if you push people who reject the concept of God, always push this point. Because there is no answer. Then how did it begin? Where's your evidence? Where is your theory? Now, the origin of life is a necessary precursor for biological evolution. And there is consensus that the complex biochemistry that makes up life came from simpler chemical reactions, but it's completely unclear how this occurred. And I got this from a, a, 
uh, a text on evolution. I, everyone admits that they don't know. They are simply making a hypothesis that it must have. But to get there, you have to exclude the possibility of there being a creative God. So there isn't a lot certain about the earliest developments in life, the structure of the first living things, or the identity and nature of the, any last universal common ancestor or ancestral gene pool. There's no scientific consensus on how life began. So basically, and this is going to sound harsh, but I think it's fair, what you have is a bunch of different people making stuff up. They're guessing. They have absolutely no idea. And there is no data. But it includes everything from self-replicating molecules, and oh, by the way, no one's ever found any, and the assembly of simple cells, and oh, by the way, there's no evidence that that's possible. Now, here's where you have to get into, remember what, the, what is required for science to be able to work, right? Is that no one has seen evolution at work over the span of geological time. There is no evidence that things evolve from very simple things to very complex things. There is evidence that things have changed, that things adapt. We see that all the time. What we don't see is that complex organism changing over time. So these so-called evolutionary trees are really just leaves and twigs with no branches or trunks. We ought to be able to trace in the geological record all the way back to some primeval creature to a present day thing, but we can't. And the reason we can't is because it's not just a missing link. Anybody heard that phrase? There's the missing link, looking for the missing link. It's not a missing link, it's a missing chain. Like a huge chunk of links, lots and lots of them to figure it out. And so what people who accept evolution as the force that caused life to arise, the problem that they have is this, is that they are working with two contrary assertions. And these are logically inconsistent, but if you really boil it down, this is where they are is that life only comes from life, okay? And that's what we see today, is that for you to be born, your parents had to be alive, both of them at one point, one of them ultimately. <laughs> and that works all across the board with plants, animals, even uh, cellular life, something's gotta be alive. Life comes from life. And then, this, the contradictory assumption is that life originally arose from the unliving. Okay, let me get this right. Life comes from life, but ultimately life came from the unliving. Now, there was an experiment. And you probably have read about this in textbooks. You've read about it in your science classes. A Dr. S.L. Miller performed an experiment where he took this big chamber and he filled it with water, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen. And then he heated it up so that everything was in the gaseous state. And then he had a mechanism for having electrical discharges into the, uh, into the vessel. So if you got the picture, basically you've got a glass vessel full of, uh, that's been heated up and it's full of gases, these mixture of gases, and then they've got some electrical corona that's discharging electricity into the gases. You got the picture? 
Anybody ever done an experiment like that? I actually have. No? No chemistry majors? Oh, I knew this was going to be rough. Okay, so anyway, so you've got the picture. Well, at the end of the day, what this guy ended up with is after a week of having like a, a basically artificially induced lightning going through this gas. I mean, that's basically what it was. It turned red. He had a red liquid. And he did an analysis and found that there were trace amounts of three simple amino acids, and the rest of it was an unidentifiable goo. Now, goo is a technical term that organic chemists have, because every reaction that you do, when you're done, there is this pile of polymeric junk. And I've heard everything called from mung to goo to things that I will not repeat in this room. But basically, he just had this tar-like material in the bottom of his flask. And this experiment, and, and if you, if, I mean, I'm not making this up. Go to Science, Volume 117, pages 528 through 529. It is a 1953 experiment, but it's still held up. And it's been held up as proof that, aha, the building blocks of life could have happened in the primitive earth. Because look, this experiment happened. That these amino acids eventually could have organized into proteins, and that given enough time, these proteins could have organized into cells, and then would have organized into living things. And over millions of years, that's what crawled out of the primordial soup. And it really is no more than that. But Dr. Miller never professed to have created life or even to have created protein. All he said was, I found traces of amino acids. And the other reality is, is that evidence is that the Earth's early atmosphere contained carbon dioxide, nitrogen, water, and hydrogen. Now, Dr. Miller knew that these gases wouldn't react at all under the conditions he had chosen. So he added ammonia and methane because that at least gave the chance that something would occur. But that doesn't assimilate the conditions from the atmosphere of the early Earth. So that experiment proved nothing because that's not what the atmosphere was. So at the risk of sounding harsh, they biased the experiment to get the outcome that they wanted. I have seen lots of examples of this in my life, mostly from my children, but I won't, I won't go along that line. But they, they hand-picked conditions to, get the out, to give them the best chance of getting the outcome that they wanted, but when you really get behind the experiment, you find that, in fact, it had nothing to do with reality. So the chance that they had to apply the experiment, experimental uh, process the scientific approach, they biased to give the best chance of getting the result they wanted. The reality is, is that none of that occurred. In fact, something like methane, which is the simplest hydrocarbon gas possible, requires an organic source most of the time. You might find traces of it on planets and atmospheres way out in space and in the stars, but usually on Earth, you, you know, you're, you're looking at some natural process that's creating methane, one of which, of course, is cows eating gra grass. 
Uh, so on closer inspection, the experiment provides no support for the chemical hypothesis of the origin of life. So in our current state of knowledge, there are two things that we can state. Man has been unable to pr produce life chemically. We cannot. We have tried. We cannot. In view of this inability, the chance origin of life must be viewed as nothing more than faith. I propose this to you, that someone who holds to just this chance formation of life, that's that person's religious belief. It is a faith that is, bounded by, that is founded upon no evidence. It doesn't even reach the level of a scientific hypothesis. There is no data to support that. And the second point is, unless someone is simply anti-Christian, it cannot be denied that the most satisfactory explanation to date is that life is the creation of the living God. Logically, technically, this is the most reasonable explanation. Now, there are lots of theories that you will hear. And people usually are on a spectrum. You have the absolute deists who say, God created everything exactly as we see it today. Nothing's changed. That's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a lunatic fringe that says, there is no God. All of this just happened by random chance. And it happened over millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And I won't listen to anything else. But there are some people in the middle who have different philosophies that I just wanted to float by you. And one is called theistic evolution. And that asserts that the classical religious teachings about God are actually compatible with modern scientific understanding about biological evolution. So in just sort of a, in, a, in a quick point is that theistic evolutionists believe that there is a God, that God created all the material in the universe, and as a result, all of the life within the universe, but that bio biological evolution is simply the method that God used to make things. So basically, well, evolution then is just a tool of God that resulted in the development of human life. Okay. Um, it's not a theory in the scientific sense, but it's just a view on how to take a look at all the data and all of the information that people have. Um, and theistic evolution supporters hold that religious teachings about creation and scientific theories of evolution don't need to contradict. Another view that you will hear is called progressive creationism. And it's the religious belief that God created new forms of life gradually so that there wasn't a creative moment, but that God's took a long time to build this stuff, okay? And it took hundreds of millions of years, and it's a form of old earth creationism, and you'll hear people talk about old earth and new earth. Uh, it accepts mainstream geology and cosmology estimates of the age of the earth, uh, but thinks there were new kinds of plants and animals that have appeared successively, uh, they generally reject macroevolution because they believe it to be biologically untenable. 
and not supported by the fossil record, and they generally reject the concept of universal descent from a last universal ancestor. So that leaves me scratching my head a lot. And so I guess I just want to ask you, why bother with all this? You know, I mean, why bother with getting all worked up about where am I in this spectrum of views? Am I a pure deist? Am I a new earth? Am I an old earth? Do I believe in a gap theory? Do I believe in a Genesis 1 creation and then a Genesis 2 creation? I'm like, why, why do we even bother with this? Why get yourself all worked up? Why even get... I refer to this as sort of like uh, hugging, hugging the tar baby, right? I mean, you're, you're hugging this sticky, gooey mess that's never going to get you anywhere when you really need to be running into the briar patch. Just get away from it all. It's craziness. Don't descend into these kinds of crazy discussions, would be my advice. We need to have a view of what we think about creation. We need to have a view of what does the Bible really say. What the Bible really says is that God created the heaven and the earth. Does the Bible even begin to explain how it happened? No. It's not necessary for the Bible to explain how it happened. It wasn't the purpose of the Bible to explain how it happened. Now, these make for fun parlor conversations to sit down over a cup of coffee and throw around ideas about, well, I wonder if God really did it in a day or he did it in a month. Or did he do it in 100 million years? I don't know. My question to you is, does that really matter? I mean, just in a pure philosophical sense. Aren't you feeling philosophical this morning? Does it really matter? As long as I believe that God created the heaven and the earth, does it matter how he did it? Do I know how he did it? Well, let me ask another question. Do you know how Jesus rose from the dead? I don't know how. I'm going to be fascinated to find that out, but I don't know. Do you know how Lazarus came forth out of the grave? No idea. There are things that we just don't know that the Bible doesn't teach. We have all kinds of information around us, and we have all these different theories but I, I would submit to you that it's, it's really almost silly to get caught up in those kinds of conversations. We can, we can agree that God created the heaven and the earth. And I'm guessing that if we would all be honest about how, how we believe the science that we hear about, the, the things that we read and the data that we hear, you know, we, we might look at that and listen to that and say, okay, I, I think I fall here, or I think I fall here, or I think I fall here. And, and that's okay. That's okay. I mean, because it's not knowable. It's not knowable. There's no data. There's no evidence. And the scientific theory can't get us there. So I guess my, my, my point would be, I, 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 would, I would challenge you to just keep things, keep things separate. It is true that we have been created to adapt. It's part of the miracle of creation. It's also true that evolution is nothing more than a faith. That evolution, as applied to uh, all the way back to origin of species, is just a guess. And it's driven by people who don't want there to be a God. That's where our conflict comes in. That's where the conflict is.
So either the conclusions drawn from Darwin's theory are true, or the biblical account of creation is true. They are mutually exclusive. It can't be both ways. And that's the thing that troubles me when people start getting into these, you know, theistic evolution or, you know, progressive creation or something like that. You're trying, you're trying to, well, it's sort of like the children of Israel beginning to bring false idols into, into their homes. It's, it's, it's like us adopting the trends of our culture. It's like, you know, us looking at, well, what's the, the newest and greatest hairdo for a guy, you know, to look, to look as weird as you possibly can. I mean, you know, what's, what's the trend behind that? that? That's the danger of all of that, is that you start letting outside culture come inside. Intellectually, this is the same kind of situation. The thing we need to keep in mind, that, the, however, is this is not a debate. It's not a war between religion and science. And that's where we have our strongest argument. If somebody insists on having the discussion, here is our strongest argument. This is a matter of science versus science. Push. When people start spewing all this craziness at you, or using it as their reason for not believing in a god, challenge the science. Challenge the assumptions. Many biologists, biochemists, and other researchers object to evolutionary theory because the broad inferences are based on flimsy, incomplete, or flawed data. That Miller experiment is only one of those. The reality is, is that many people just don't want there to be anything beyond nature. They don't want there to be a God. Because if they have to accept there's a God, they have to accept many other things. And they just don't want to. My last slide on this, I think, is I just want to be clear. God created everything. Everything he created can adapt or evolve. So always be careful how you use that word to accommodate changing conditions. It's part of the miracle of creation. It doesn't follow, though, that this ability to undergo microevolution requires the conclusion that we all resulted from macroevolution. There's no fossil data at all for the transition between species. There's nothing that shows that. What the fossil evidence does show is the sudden appearance of nearly every animal and every plant with the families fully formed. There's not a trace of evolutionary ancestors that the Darwinist or evolutionary theory requires. Okay. Let's talk about miracles. Anybody had a miracle in their life? believe you really have. Honest to goodness, I have had miracles in my life. When I was a younger man, much younger man, in college, I did a crazy thing. I was a heavy drinker. And I dove through a plate glass door. Corral, if you got to go, require whatever you blue-robed people are. Go ahead and go. Um, I did a crazy thing. We were horsing around, and long story short, I ended up diving through a plate glass door. And I cut all the nerves and tendons and arteries to my right hand. And the first hospital that they took me to was in a small town in, in western Michigan. And the doctor that was there, I'm pretty sure, was somebody who had escaped Nazi Germany. <sighs> and uh, his, he spoke with a very strong German accent. And he told me that they were going to take off my hand and put on a prosthesis. 
that there was nothing that could be done. That did not sit well with me. And uh, being right-handed and all. And so uh, they transferred me to a hospital in, or in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it just so happened that there was a, a specialist who had come there to do surgery on a celebrity, Danny Thomas, in fact. Uh, and he repaired my right hand. And he sewed it up, and he looked at me, and he said, I've done all I can do. If you get the use of your right hand back, it will be because the man upstairs took care of you. I got to tell you, that was a transition point in my walk with God. And uh, I'm happy to say today that I have a right hand that's fully functional. Now, I have a scar. I don't feel everything just right in this hand. In fact, I was, if my hand hurts, I have to look at it to see where the owie is because the back of my hand will hurt and I'll have a cut on one of my fingers. So it didn't come back just exactly right. And I don't have a lot of manual dexterity and there are things that I can't do. Um, but this was a miracle. I have a miracle. Every time I look at my right hand or I do something in my right hand, I'm reminded God did a miracle in my life. My youngest son, Evan, when he was a little, little boy, had heart problems, he had seizures, he had neurological problems. In the day that he was dedicated, the message was, it is well. I'll never forget it. And my pastor prayed for that little boy, and he never had another seizure after that day. Now, some could say, well, that's Evan's miracle. I'd say, no. That's my miracle. And then my son Bradley, who I love very much, and he's sitting in the back, was a lost soul. Just a lost soul. And uh, God restored him which was important for him. But as a dad, I can tell you, it's really important for me to be able to sit and see my son worship when before he was off doing terrible things, most of which I'm sure I don't know, which is fine. So for those who refuse to say there are miracles or will not accept the miracles, I'm sorry, you've come too late to talk to me. Can't, can't tell me that. So what is a miracle? Let's have a definition. A miracle is an event which is not producible by the natural causes that are operative at the time and place that the event occurs. Now that seems like a lot of words for a miracle. But what a miracle is is that something happens that cannot be explained, cannot be explained by the forces that are operative at the time the miracle occurs. Therefore, miracles lie outside of science. And science, by definition, deals with the natural, the repeatable, and that which is governed by natural law. So you can't look to science to prove up a miracle or try to understand a miracle. The Bible teaches that everything is regulated by God, which, like himself, is unchanging, but which is so complex that there are an infinite number of of things that could happen. And those things do not exclude even the miracle intervention. 
Logicians, people who look at logic, have a term that's referred as inference to the best explanation. And that means that you've got all of this data sitting there, and you have a pool of all these live options or various explanations that you could use to explain the data. And then what you need to do is to choose which explanation from that pool would, if true, be the best explanation for the thing that you have observed. Skeptics, however, will not allow supernatural explanations to even be in the pool of live options. So I'm going to take God, I'm going to take the supernatural out of it. Therefore, if there's no natural explanation for the event, all that's left is ignorance. Right? If you've taken the best explanation and said, I'm going to reject that, well, now you're stuck on stupid. Right? Because now the best explanation you have now taken out of the possible explanations. That's prejudice. That's out and out prejudice. Apart from some proof of atheism, which is another key point that you should always keep in mind, when someone asks you for absolute definitive proof of God, turn the question around. I mean, just turn it around. Prove there isn't one. Why do I got to prove this to you? You prove it to me. Prove there isn't one. That's another lesson. There is no warrant for excluding supernatural explanations from the pool of live options. Don't even get into a big fight with people about miracles. I know what I've, I know what I've lived. I'm going to give you my testimony. If you don't want to believe that's a miracle, knock yourself out. I believe it, and I know how it happened. So the study of science from a Christian perspective leads to a greater appreciation for God and his creative genius. I would challenge everybody to study science. If you have the least bit of interest, aptitude, skill, if you're into the math, science kind of thing, don't be afraid of it. Study it. It does not lead you away from God. It gives you a greater appreciation of God. I had one of those moments one time. They had this uh, molecular modeling group at Lilly. And what they do is they actually take a protein and crystallize it. And then they are able to project the crystal in three dimensions. So you go into this room with goggles, right? And you're actually in the protein. And you're looking around. And you can see all the atoms and all the binding sites and stuff all around you. Then they can bring in the molecules that you're, you're interested in, and you can see how they dock, how they interact, all the bonds, how it comes on and off, and you're sit, sitting there in real time. And I don't come away from that thinking, man, how smart we are. I come away from that thinking, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Unbelievable, the things that God has done. All we're doing is getting a little picture of the things that God has figured out. That's, that's, all, that's all we're doing. That's the best we can do. But the reality is, is that God created an amazing thing. Nature and life is incredible. Here's a quote that I really liked, and it's from a guy named Andre Ampere. Anybody ever study electricity and heard of an amp? This is the guy that did all the research in physics and electrical current and stuff. And here's what he said. Happy the one who in his learned watches, contemplating the marvels of this vast universe, 
before so much beauty, before so much grandeur, bows the knee and acknowledges the divine creator. I do not share the foolish incoherence of the scientist who would contest the existence of God, who would close his ears to what the heavens declare and refuse to see what shines before his eyes. To know God, to love him, to render him a pure homage, that is true knowledge and the study of the wise. That is a great quote. And that's from a scientist. So, I want to talk to you now, just for the last few minutes, about the ultimate experiment. You remember that something has to be observable, measurable, and repeatable, right? Well, our relationship with God can be experienced. It's observable. It's measurable. And it's reproducible. So when someone is challenging your belief in God on scientific reasons, ask them, I want you to do an experiment with for me. Come to church with me. Listen to the preacher for a period of time. I want you to repent of your sins. Be baptized in Jesus' name and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And then we'll talk about this again. But until you run this experiment, which you can run, I'm not going to have this argument with you. If you really get down to that where someone just doesn't want to believe in God. So here's an interesting thought experiment. I drove up this morning and I wondered if Brother Mooney was here. Well, I looked in the parking spot, and there was his, his car. I think it's a black Cadillac. There it sat. There's his car. And I thought, well, he might be here. Now, I didn't do these next steps, but what I could have done would be to go into the office and ask Sister Pedigo, is Brother Mooney here? And she, maybe she would have said, well, you know, I, t- I talked to my dad just this morning. He's, he's, he's in his office. Well, there's another piece of evidence. I've seen his car. Somebody else has seen him, so I've got another piece of evidence. And maybe he'd be in there counseling with someone, and I could walk up to the door, and I could hear his voice on the other side and know, oh, Brother Mooney's here. I haven't seen him. I haven't been face-to-face with him. But I have seen his car. I've talked to someone who has seen him recently, and I've heard his voice. I have all this data. And so I can infer, ah, Brother Mooney's here. Or I could walk up to the door, knock on it, and if I'm allowed to come in, go face-to-face with Brother Mooney. Now, if I have a face-to-face experience, that doesn't mean that all of that inferential data is wrong. But all that inferential data now becomes supportive data because I have done the ultimate experience. I walked in and I talked to Brother Mooney face-to-face. So when you've met God face-to-face, repented of your sins, been baptized in Jesus' name, and been filled with the Holy Ghost, you know he's real. And then you don't need to rely on, well, look at the complexity of the universe. Look at the complexity of life. Let's, you know, let's talk about, uh, you know, how difficult it would have been for life to form from a primordial soup, Okay. You can avoid all that because now I've got the face-to-face experience. 
similar to actually walking up to the door and speaking with Brother Mooney personally. We can have that kind of relationship with God. Just walk to the door. Say, here I am. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. It's just a matter of having the experience. You know, at the end of the day, you're going to have people who just don't want to believe. And I'm not talking about different, different views or, or approaches to Christianity. You're going to have people who just aren't going to want to believe in God. And at some point, you've got to put away all the theories and all the arguments, and you go to your testimony. That's all you got. And so I'm going to do something that scares a lot of people, but I'm going to revert to a song. And the song that came to my mind as I was studying all this stuff and I'm preparing the lesson is a simple old song. And that is, you don't know like I know what he's done for me. I said, you don't know like I know what he's done for me. When I think about what he's done for me. He's filled me with the Holy Ghost. That's what he's done for me. The word of your testimony is the most powerful tool that you can use to help bring all of this into context. It's not craziness. It's not foolishness. It is your experience. It is the result of your ultimate experiment. Let's stand. And we'll dismiss in prayer. Jesus, we love you, Lord. We're thankful for your many blessings, for your mercy and your grace.